Section 9 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 6, Part 2. 5. Looking back afterwards, she was no more able to trace the hurried sequence of events which led to her marriage with Mario Rasponi than one is able to relate the procession of incidents in a dream. Indeed, it took its place appropriately in what was still a dream life. Outwardly, there was an admirable semblance of intention, even of calm. But the girl was not yet near waking, and she proceeded in a kind of deliberate trance which brooked neither interference from without nor direction by her own shrouded intelligence. One of the strangest things in the strange business was that Mario never persuaded her into saying that she loved him. She was captured by his ardor, and after the first weak resistance worked, defiant of opposition, for their speedy marriage. But often she still cried at nights for Bob, and felt as if she must go mad in her renewed efforts towards understanding him. Twice she wrote to him. Surely if there was a scrap of real feeling in him for her, it would show now. But he remained aloof. He begged her to be sure of her own mind, wished her good luck, whatever her decision. In spite of this, Joanna would have gone to him had he been in England. She believed that a sight of his face might have held her firm against Mario. But while awaiting the result of his examination, he was with his father in Germany. And all the time Mario's onslaught continued. The researches which had brought him to Glasgow were complete. He wanted to get back to Italy, where there was work after his own heart for the asking and he was set on taking Joanna with him whether he won her love or not. His judgment told him that her quick consent was a likelihood, for love there would be time enough later. Actually, he preferred it so. It satisfied an insane violence that was part of him. To Julie he was attentive and affectionate in a bright filial way which gave her great pleasure. He enlivened her, and she felt at home with him as she always did with foreigners. She loved airing her rusty Italian while he praised her intonation. His enthusiasm, his clear unworldliness, warmed her heart. They had long and on her side impassionate talks about the persecution of the Jews in Russia. She was delighted with his interest in politics. She was still more delighted that he enjoyed her society. Here was a young, clever man who did not fight shy of her. At first, Joanna wondered that her mother made so light of Mario's frank irreligion. Was it possible that one to whom faith was everything could overlook its absence in a son-in-law? Yet the explanation was simple. Rasponi came of a strict Catholic family. One of his uncles was a cardinal. And the fact that he had broken with the Church of Rome was by Julie accounted to him for righteousness. Then there were the rides he gave her. He had rigged up a wicker trailer and attached it to that amazing machine of his which Julie would insist on calling the Velocipede. She enjoyed every moment of the velocipede from its arrival at the front door. She liked to feel the neighbors at their windows while Mario was tucking her in. She smiled happily at the little crowd of children who gathered around, and when he rang his bell and took her slowly down the long slope to Woodlands Road and back again, she was in raptures. Each time they went out thus, her wonder was new. She could not grow accustomed to it. But she would not hear about his flying. If we had been meant to fly, she said, looking sorrowfully at him, God would have given us wings. And she refused to listen to his ready arguments, so he let her be. To Joanna he spoke little of his work, but much of women's place in the scheme of things. He laughed to scorn her ideas of companionship between man and woman. 
"'Do you think I would choose you?' he exclaimed one day, "'if I wished for a companion. "'You, a little, ignorant girl from Glasgow, with no experience of life, "'no knowledge of what most interests me, machinery, no intellect to speak of, "'why, you don't even know my language. "'Some day, say, twenty years hence, when you have learned all I have to teach you, "'you may be a fit companion for a man, and then only perhaps. "'But by then you will have lost what now sets my heart on fire. "'Companion! My poor baby!' You do not know what you are talking of, and what it is you want you still less know. Would you be here with me now, dropping your eyes before the desire in mine, if we were companions? I think not. Joanna and he were having tea at a little wayside hotel to which he had brought her in his trailer. The country air had reddened her cheeks, but Mario was whiter than ever, and his eyes danced dark and fanatical in his head. The girl had no answer ready to his tirade, and he expected none. He continued, you and your Bob may be companions if you please, both of you free to come and go, to take other companions, as many as you like, to live apart, to discuss this theory and that when you meet. Very good. You might have his companionship. Does it satisfy you? Rolling her bread into balls on the tablecloth, Joanna tried to collect her scattered forces. She could never stand up to Mario in argument, and was so perturbed under his glance that her ideas seemed to melt like snow-wreaths near a bonfire. "'Can't one have the two things together?' she appealed to him, timidly. "'In theory, perhaps,' he replied, and as he spoke he buttoned up with an air of finality the high collar of his leather coat. "'But not in practice. Not at least when I am the man and you the woman. There is at this moment a man at the corner table who has been looking at you, and I want to kill him for daring to do so. Is that companionship?' "'Nah. Let us go back. Waiter, the bill.' As the two left the room, Mario, holding the door open for her, glared at the man in the corner. He was an inoffensive young fellow who had been struck, not really so much by Joanna as by the atmosphere engendered by the couple. The moment they had gone, the other people in the room began to discuss them. Another of their talks was in the park. It was strange how, in Joanna's emotions, the park became to be associated with Mario as the botanic gardens were with Bob. And in the same way, the two wooings were bound up with their seasons. Bob's young love, so confused and pathetic, had been in the early spring. Mario's was in the late autumn. And autumn, even more than spring, is disturbing to those who give themselves readily to nature's impulses. For if in spring we are pierced by the innumerable points of flame which dart skywards from the ground, in autumn our senses are more subtly assailed. For passion's sake, then, the earth's laying aside her ornaments. There is a new restlessness and rapture of bird life, a new sense of disquiet and elation. The wooded places are full of the intoxicating smolder of fecundity. On this November evening, traces of a recent hail shower still gleamed on the black railings, on the slopes of grass, on the dark-bodied trees, each standing in the circle of its own lovely droppings. The naked sky, lofty and compassionate, flung its arch over a glittering world. And in that arch, incredibly remote, ineffably pure, hung the pale, waxing moon like a beaker of fretted silver. To the right of the path chosen by Mario and Joanna, a tree crowned with a top-knot of ivy sheltered a noisy tribe of starlings. It swayed gently under the bird's impetuous communings. Over the pink granite bridge swung a glossy private carriage drawn by a pair of bays, and Mario pulled Joanna aside so that she should not be spattered by the mud which lay thick on the road. Having crossed the river, the two climbed the further hill. Here and there were seats on the little semicircular terraces facing the university, and on one of these they sat down. 
Mario, as usual, spoke first. "'How like olives those are, except for the color," he said. "'Are they not?' He was pointing to a group of small, distorted trees on the slope below them. "'I've never seen olive trees.' "'No, but you shall, and soon. Yes, as soon as possible.' Mario spoke meditatively, as if calculating, and his eyes did not leave the trees. The girl wondered at his prolonged interest in them. "'What kind of trees are they?' he asked her. Joanna didn't know. Now he looked at her. "'Do you know anything?' Joanna crimsoned. Truly, beside this man, she felt her ignorance. But deeper than her shame was the sensual gratification of this inferiority. "'That one is a willow, I know,' she said, pointing to a nearer tree. Its long, pliant boughs trailed their ends on the grass all around it, hiding the central stem. "'Isn't it like a cage?' A cage? Yes, he agreed, and again he turned his eyes from the tree to Joanna's face. How would you like to live in a cage, a cage full of sunshine and beauty and delight, a cage of which the man you loved kept the key? I don't think I should like it, thank you. Why not? A cage is a prison, isn't it? A prison? Mario made a gesture of despair. Oh, you English women with your phrases. I'm not English, I'm Scotch. Well, you Scottish women with your theories, tell me, what are the things in the world of best to a woman? Are they not air, light, gaiety, love, ease, shelter from the brutalities of life, children, tenderness, adoration? Does this freedom you talk of secure these? Does it not, in reality, make them impossible? Tell me, you learned little girl of Glasgow, will freedom give you what you hunger for? Look at me and tell me. But Joanna stared persistently at the willow. "'Look at me,' he repeated. "'Why should I look at you?' she opposed him with low-voiced obstinacy. "'If I want to go on looking at the tree.' Her words sounded to her indescribably childish and silly, but she was near to tears. "'You are afraid to look at me,' said Mario, and the old taunt succeeded. Joanna turned her face to him. More beautiful she was to him than any picture he had formed of her. He leaned nearer, gripping the back of the bench with one hand. "'I feel as if once, centuries ago, I had kept you in a cave, and you liked it,' he said. "'And so that I might have your portrait painted, without the painter falling in love with you, I dressed you as a young man. I shall take you to see that portrait in London, and later, when we go to Italy together, I shall get Madalena, my sister, to make you a suit of black cloth with a linen chemise open at the neck.' like the girl in the picture. Madalena is clever at dress. She will teach you also how to clothe yourself as a woman, for even in this you are ignorant. The coat you wear now is so hideous I shudder at it. Yes, Madalena shall teach you much, but I shall teach you more. Then, after many years, when at last your youth is gone and your beauty, you will be a fit companion for men. What do you say? Will you stay and go to school there? Mario's voice rose as he waved an arm at the darkening university. Or will you come away and learn from me? There you will have books and bones. Here, with me, touching his breast, you will have all that is of value in either books or bones. You will have life, and very soon you must decide. 6. Next morning Joanna woke very early, yet feeling unusually refreshed. She was conscious of an exquisite calm and had a vision crystal clear and unshaken of existence. All difficulties fell from her. She knew now, as if it were written on her bedroom wall, that she would be Mario's wife and would go away with him to Italy. 
Already she had shed her life in Glasgow like a husk. Had it happened in sleep? Before her now lay the new life, and she set her face towards it freed. She was done with questioning. Everything was beautifully simple. Mario needed her. No one else did. It was wonderful to be needed by this dark, exigent man with the curious beauty that took her breath away. Everything could be left to him. She had only to hold out her hands, to give. Splendid, giving to anyone who wanted what you had with such blazing eagerness. She would think no more about Bob. He had failed her, or she had failed him, which she might never know. Thinking of Bob, she seemed to see his face drowned in tears. There was a fountain of tears in her for Bob, or for herself in connection with Bob. That must be sealed up. There were no tears in her for Mario. This was a thought that gave strength. Mario might frighten her. He would never be able to hurt her as Bob had hurt her, as Bob was hurting her even now. It was through her dreams that Bob hurt her. About Mario she had no dreams. He was her escape into reality. Resting there in bed, lapped by the silken warmth of her half-awakened body, she wondered why Mario, who wanted her so much more than ever Bob had wanted her, should estimate her so much lower. Bob had admired her drawing, her clothes, the way she did her hair. But Mario? She recalled the first time she had taken him to her studio, how he had poured scorn on her drawing, reminding her in his denunciations of Nilsson, the Swedish master of design at the art school, who was the only teacher for whom she had even attempted to work during this last term. "'You draw with your head alone,' Mario had said. "'One must draw with one's heart, one's blood.' And in quick boredom he had turned from her work to the pair of old wine-glasses, from which, eight months before, Bob and she had drunk their betrothal champagne." These now, he had exclaimed, these are truly beautiful. Look at them and see how the maker understood the working of glass with his heart as well as with his brain. And so in the glass you find the wickedness of his heart proclaimed as well as the goodness, a piece of pure, defiant art. In your drawing you suppress the evil that partly creates you, so there is no good there either, no beauty of life. How did you come by the glasses? They are Irish, I should think. Taking them from the mantelpiece, blowing off the studio dust, holding them delicately to the light, Mario had considered them with that intentness of his which was always a wonder to Joanna. He never looked at anything vaguely, as she, confused and absorbed by her own emotions, so constantly did. He had raised his brows as she told him how she had bought them of a dealer for a few shillings. But I won't tell him why I got them, she had said to herself. That will be a secret always between them and me and Bob. Yet immediately something that did not seem herself had made her tell him. He had watched her face during the brief, hesitating recital, still holding the glasses delicately by their stems, one in either hand, between the forefinger and the thumb. And when she was done he had raised his hands a very little, and opened his fingers. And the glasses, the lovely wine-glasses that were like river water full of the shimmer of wavelets and criss-cross reeds, had been shattered on the hearthstone in ten million shivers. He had offered no apology. That, then, is the end of them, he had said. That was all. Yes, it might be she did not love this man. But she exulted in him. She exulted in his certitude, in his power of action. To her he appeared unhampered, and therefore godlike. And he so gloriously knew what he wanted. He wanted her, Joanna, out of all the world of women. Well, he was to have her. It was decided, and decided by some power quite outside of her will. 7. From that moment the end was lost in sight of the many exigencies of the means. 
On the amazing central fact of her marriage, Joanna did not let herself dwell, even in her most solitary hours. All her energies and her awakening powers of management were thrown into bringing about the wedding with the least possible delay. Once she had pledged herself to Mario, there seemed no valid reason for delay, while there were many for haste. The sooner he returned to Italy, the better their prospects. But he would not suffer a parting. He was afraid of losing her. And Joanna was glad of his refusal, for she shared his fear, and shared it strangely on his account. "'If he goes away, he'll never get me,' was her scarce articulate thought. So they both conspired in doing away with the inevitable obstacles. And soon their haste, which to their small circle had at first seemed the height of unreason, assumed an air of almost common sense. It was a little sudden, perhaps, but after all the circumstances were exceptional. As for Julie, in the turn things had taken, she perceived the finger of God. Of late she had been conscious of Joanna's restless lassitude, but from any appeal for confidence the girl had at once recoiled further than ever into herself. To pray and sorrow in private, then, was all the mother could do. And might not Mario be God's answer? One must have faith. Had Sholto been alive, all would have been different. 8. In Glasgow, at the moment, the Bannermans were awkwardly placed for a pastor, so after much talk it was decided that the wedding should take place in London. Mario went on first to arrange matters with the Italian consul, who was a friend, and Joanna followed with her mother. They so nearly missed the London train that it had begun to move before they were on board. Julie, worn out by the rush, sank down at once in the carriage, but Joanna stayed in the corridor and hung out of the window to say good-bye to her brothers. Linnet, rushing alongside, thrust something into her hand, something small wrapped in tissue paper. "'That's my present,' he panted. "'I hadn't any money, but I thought you'd be able to wear this. You'd better not tell Mother. She might be vexed.' Joanna clutched the little packet and nodded and smiled. She couldn't see for tears. The train ran faster, and Linnet stopped. He waved his cap up and down in a queer, jerky way, as if shy of moving his arms in public. Further down the platform stood Sholto, making wide gestures with two handkerchiefs. He had been learning signaling in his cadet corps at school. Suddenly, the sister felt like a deserter. How could she leave the boys? Why was she doing it? To get married? It seemed unnatural, monstrous. Sholto had worked hard to get his present finished in time. It was a poker-worked toilet set. Brushes, hand mirror, boxes and tray, all with the same lily-of-the-valley design. She leaned out, waving. She waved and waved till the train, curving, cut the platform from sight. Then, in the corridor, she opened Linnet's package. He had given her his father's gold signet ring. It had been his since his fifteenth birthday, and though he never wore it, they all knew he treasured it. It bore the bannerman crest, pro patria, under a naked demi-man holding a banner. Joanna put it on under her glove. 9. The night before the wedding, Georgie cried a good deal, for she was sure Joanna didn't properly love the man she was marrying, and marriage without love was the desecration of desecrations. Georgie came to sleep at the little temperance hotel in Bloomsbury, where Julie had taken rooms, and she shared Joanna's bed. Joanna's replies to her questions confirmed her worst fears. Her sister was entering a loveless marriage. But Georgie understood that it could not be stopped, and miserable as she was, it was Georgie who insisted on a white satin bow upon the coachman's whip. They had hired a carriage with two horses. Georgie said they must have two, to take them to the registrar's, where Mario waited with his friend, the consul. The marriage was over in five minutes, and they all drove on to the station for lunch. Joanna, in a blue traveling dress, the price of which she would not tell Georgie, 
and a little white, close-fitting hat, smote on her mother's heart. She looked so unprepared, so lamentably young. Yet to the last she had sheared away from all maternal warnings in counsel. The farewell was scrappy and confused. Julie, at the last moment, remembering injunctions about Aunt Purdy to whom she was sending presents, almost forgot to kiss Joanna goodbye. Georgie blubbered, but bore up. Mario was angry because there were other people in the carriage. But at this Joanna felt a secret relief. Not till they were on the Dover packet did she come alive to the strange adventure. She had not been out of England before. The channel boat was different from any steamer on the Clyde. The waters of the channel rippled and shone, as she had never seen other waters ripple and shine. Near her some people chattered in French. The sailors ran about. There was a smell of biscuits and brandy, of ropes, of tar, of engines, of the sea, the smell of foreign travel. A handsome woman, very well dressed, with beautifully tinted hair, scarlet lips, and blackened eyes, looked Joanna down and up, and Joanna took her envy for criticism. Mario had gone to find deck chairs. He stood at some distance, speaking to a sailor, his shoulders moving. Very foreign and animated, yet very much at home he seemed to her in these unaccustomed surroundings. Afraid, but thrilled through and through, his bride watched him. That man in the gray suit was her husband. He was a stranger to her. At this moment he appeared a complete stranger. Yet she had left her mother, her home, all that was familiar to come away with him. This, then, was life at last. But it seemed less real, more dreamlike, than anything that had gone before. She was going to a strange land, was going among strangers, was going along with that passionate stranger in the gray suit. The train of experience was alight. Greatly she feared it, but not for anything would she have escaped. Soon Mario came, with the sailor, carrying chairs. When he had made things comfortable in his deft, experienced way, he groped under the spread rug for Joanna's hand. The middle-aged woman with the very red lips looked on for a moment, then she turned with a little smile, and leaning on the deck rail, gazed toward the coast of France. End of section 9